I don't wanna go to work. I just wanna chill and play all day. Look him dead in the face and say, I wish I could just be still asleep while you work. Welcome back to the Jobs Blow podcast. I'm your host, Brianna Haas, here once again to share inspiring stories about getting ahead. This week's show is called On the Partner Track, But Not in the Race, with lawyer and author of The Partner Track, Helen Wan. Helen, I can't believe you're finally here. <laughs> it's so nice to be here, Brianna. Thanks it's for having so, me. No, it's so nice to have you. I it was saying to you before the show, I feel like we were like pen pals for six <laughs> months. Yeah. Right? Yes. But now that the show has finally premiered, time really flies because it's been a very exciting, a fun ride. And yes, yeah, so you're here to talk about the new show on Netflix, Partner Track. Yes. And that is based on a book you wrote by the same title, Partner Track. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's based on your experience in a big time law firm in Manhattan, as well as, as we were talking before the show about kind of other friends' experiences in corporate America. Right. Yes. Partner Track, actually, when it was originally published, my novel was published years, years before. And so thrilled that it's finally been brought to the screen. And it's just been amazing to see all of these characters be brought to life. (laughs) Well, this is exciting. So we're going to backtrack a little and talk about what led you to write the book. But -hmm. before we jump in, I always try to pull a quote that's relevant to my guest. And so I found this one and it is, you may not control all the events that happen to you, but you can decide not to be reduced by them. Mm -hmm. Do you know who said that quote? I don't have a guess. It's Maya Angelou. Oh, okay. I just thought it was perfect knowing that you took a situation where you were unhappy and you made changes and hello, you have a series on Netflix now. (laughs) It's not happening for a lot of people. It's fantastic. I feel very, very lucky for all the you know serendipities that have happened to have created this show and everything that happened to this project, which literally began as scribblings, my little scribblings, and I'm dating myself, pen on paper scribblings in a journal on my commute, on my way as I commuted back and forth to my first job, which was at a large law firm in New York. So that's a good segue. Okay. What college did you graduate from? I graduated from um, Amherst College in Massachusetts, and I went straight to law school, which this is a whole other conversation, but I went directly to law school and I had not grown up with some sort of burning desire to be a lawyer. It was just more, (laughs) the calculation was (laughs) truly as basic as, oh, well, what do I love doing? What What am I passionate about? Well, I love the written word. I love working with words. And in the approved troika of careers here, <laughs> you know, having been born of, uh, you know, first generation just immigrant parents, here are the careers that are okay. Law, medicine, perhaps accounting, I don't know, you know <laughs> engineering. And so among those, oh, well, who works with words? Lawyers work with words. And so I took the LSAT and I did well enough to get into the law schools. And uh, yeah, there I was. <laughs> you know, I... Headed, I headed to law school that fall, uh, you know, right after college. And which which law school did you go to? Oh, UVA, uh, University of Virginia School of Law. And did you start your career in New York City? 
Yes. I've only practiced law actually in the New York area. Okay. So it's funny because I remember moving to New York right out of college and knowing people who had jobs in law who Mm -hmm. worked insane hours. Yeah. (laughs) Insane. And, you know, when you're 22 and it's like, I can go out and these people are going and and doing all this work, but I know in the end game, they're (laughs) going to make all kinds of money and maybe I won't. So you came to New York. So you got your first job. How long were you at this particular job? Is this what Partner Trek is based off of this first job? So so my very first job out of law school, it was at, you know, one of these, these big law firms. And I was in the corporate M&A group, like Ingrid, but unlike Ingrid, I did not try to stay and make partner. I only was there for under two years. And then I left to go to a media and entertainment intellectual property boutique law firm, which was a whole very, very, very different kind of experience, even though they both are, are obviously law firms. And then ultimately, after being at that boutique firm for a number of years, I left to go in-house at the then Time Inc. division of Time Warner. And then I've always been in-house since then. So, Okay. So do you prefer in-house? I do. I made that change for like lifestyle reasons, which is why I think most of the lawyer friends that I have that made that same decision, I think that's why they made that move too. So yeah, for me, I mean, obviously it's different person by person, of course, but for me, it was a smart decision to go move uh, in-house. So at what point did you start deciding that you wanted to write a book? And what was was the journey (laughs) from start to finish on writing that book? I got the idea that I wanted to start writing at all when during my first year, like pretty soon after graduating law school. And I was observing these things happen and it was just such an alien, just a, a real alien culture to me, the whole corporate culture. And I just felt like there were certain rules that I didn't know. No one had communi- communicated them. I don't know. It, it just felt like there was a certain unwritten set of rules that a certain set of people did understand in corporate America. And then a certain other sets of people did not understand, you know, kind of like I was absent the day they passed out the decoder rings. And that's when I started writing, scribbling in a, in a journal back and forth as I commuted to, to and from work. Now you're working crazy hours, so th- there's not a ton of time, of spare time to write, obviously. But I would be a weekend warrior and I would write before work or late at night after work. And then when I had a number, a significant number of pages that I was happy with, I started sharing them with a couple of trusted friends, mentors, confidants, and... Um, not all lawyers, by the way. Many of them were working in different places, but similar corporate America cultures. And they said, oh, are you wanting to get this published? Are you trying to get this published? And I was like, I started writing them as a kind of like just form of creative outlet or you know therapy <laughs> because you're working such crazy hours. And so I, I had no idea how a person starts going about trying to get anything published. You know? So I literally went to the bookstore and I got one of those how to get published for dummies type books. And one of the things they said was, okay, well, take a look at your favorite bookstore shelves and identify the kind of book that you wish you would see there and and that's missing and try to write that. 
And so when I thought I was, you know, I had about 50, 75 good polished pages, like they said, I started querying agents. And I was lucky. I, I got a, a couple of nibbles very quickly, very early on. But they said, well, who would be the audience for this? Not really sure how we would market this. Not really sure who we would market this <laughs> to. But love your writing. I love the, the, the themes. And if you figure out a way to pitch and market this effectively, contact me again. And I got a lot of responses like that. And then I got a couple of responses that were saying, hey, I love this, but I'm not going to be able to sell this as a just collection of like late night essay scribblings from some unknown person toiling away at a big law firm. No, that's, that's not going to work, I don't think. But what if you tried it as a novel? What if you tried? That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. So initially, it was short stories, not... It, it was short, like sketches, like episodic little sketches. I would say, and just my of my observations from corporate life, kind of like as as an outsider, as someone to whom this was very alien. (laughs) And so then I took that advice and I did start to fictionalize it and create a story arc and try to novelize it. And then when I had a manuscript for a novel, I shopped it again, and this time was successful in getting an agent. And then um, St. Martin's Press. uh, Okay, so it was published in 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when did the journey, what year did the journey start? Would you say? Oh, oh. <laughs> I graduated law school in 98. But when did you start writing? When did you start writing? Well, like, like 99, 2000. Wow. Okay. So it has been a 23 year journey to get to the Netflix show. So did your book agent help you get the Netflix show? How did that happen? Oh, um, CAA, Creative Artists out in LA. Many novelists I know who have the, like the co-agent. Oh, okay. So you have a CAA agent who? Who was uh, shopping it, the, the television film rights. Yeah. Okay. And so, how long How long were they trying to do that before you got picked up? To be honest, I'm not really sure. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> because during that intervening time, to be perfectly honest, I had a baby. I became a parent. And once you become a parent, it changes everything. <laughs> Indeed. And so for a long time, I wasn't focusing on, oh, the TV film rights are being shopped around at all, because I was busy learning how to be a mom and also still be a full-time lawyer. So the very great day that my agent did call and say, hey, are you sitting down? And I was like, okay, I can be. And then they told me the news. They said, we think that Netflix might be interested in adapting Partner Track. Well, and I was saying to you before the show, I love all of these real life, the documentaries that become series, but I'm always questioning. So what really happens if I didn't watch the doc? Like if I can watch the doc, then I know myself. But if I'm only watching the series, then I don't know. So that's why I'm thrilled to have you because I am watching Partner Track and there are things that I'm like, did that happen or not? So you're here to clear it up. What characters did not exist in your book? Yeah, so the creative changes that were made in transitioning from the book to screen, a lot of characters were either just added or their backstory was greatly you know, expanded. And I love that they did that. And I understand why that happened because it now allows for more room 
to hit on a lot of the themes that I was uh, trying to express with the novel. I love the Rachel and Tyler friendship. So both of them were, you know, I had I had written them in the novel, but now their backstory and they're just much more um, fully realized characters, which I really love. Also, there was no Nick Laren in my novel, actually. And Nick Laren, just so everyone knows, is the boyfriend of the main character. Yes. Yes. The very wealthy boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, yes, yes. Mr. Trust Fund of, of, of New York. But anyway, as I was binge watching the show, you know, over one weekend, I was loving the show and I thought it was really, frankly, I I was just really happy at the way that they managed to talk about the themes that I was trying to talk talk about, you know, and get across with my book, but still keep it funny and sexy and smart and with these new characters that really, really add to the good story. So I was really pleased. Well, and as someone who's had many experiences in corporate America, I am having visceral reactions to this show. The (laughs) misogyny, for one, that she experiences. I mean, I hope it's better now. But I, you know, started in the early 90s in New York. Mm -hmm, And so I relate to a number of situations in the show. Like, the racism, I can't relate to so much, but what Tyler deals with through HR, I, I can 100%. I have my own frustrations with HR. And I love that HR, the woman's name is Karen. It just seems so fitting. Although she seems like she has good intentions. And quite honestly, the answer being at the bottom line in the situation. So just for the audience, Tyler is an African-American gentleman and another person at the law firm named Dan gets up at a company retreat and does a very racist comedy routine. And it's based on a conversation he had with Tyler where Tyler called him out for his white fragility. And so the HR gets involved and they think that he might get put on probation, which would take him off the partner track. But lo and behold, he does not get probation because he brings a lot of business in. The bottom line is more important. And if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that, (laughs) I mean, I think what you're really hitting on here is that whole mentality of don't take things too personally as a way to make an exception for a senior person's bad behavior. It's funny that you bring up that particular episode, the, the firm retreat, because that probably, that is the one that I get the most reader feedback on. The most just kind of like visceral, kind of like, oh my gosh, that was that that episode is so good, but yet so triggering for me. <laughs> you know? And it's aftermath, like episodes five, six, and the, the whole aftermath. Mm-hmm. Wow, it's because it's so I have lived that experience. Readers and viewers of the show have told me that that they were like, oh, okay, that firm outing, that firm retreat. Well, and I think for me, you really nailed it though, with the explanation. He brings in business. The bottom line is money first. It doesn't matter how inappropriate his behavior was or how it made any of the rest of you feel. Yeah. He brings in, he brings in business. He has a great book of business. 
it's all about, yeah, bottom line driven. And look, part of me gets it because it's a law firm, right? You're, it, <laughs> so it, these are all businesses, these, you know, banks and large companies. But yeah, I think that it really has hit a nerve because people were kind of like, whoa, this book was written, what, like almost however many years ago? <laughs> and now and now these things are still happening. I, you know, I really, I really like what they did with episode five, where they had Dan, the character you just met, Dan Fallon, do this stand-up routine about the white fragility. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really, really smart update to what I had had in the book. And, and there, there are a lot of smart, just creative choices that were made that way because the book was written a number of years ago. You know what I mean? Like in my book, everyone still had carried around Blackberries, <laughs> Which, you know? So did you have a moment that made you leave your job or a job or was the book just based on all the things you saw? It wasn't like you. Yeah, had- yeah no one. It was just my scribblings literally on my way to and from work. And I would just jot them down and, and they were, they weren't even chapters. They weren't even like standalone essays. They were really more just kind of scribblings. Sketches, well, you know? And I have to say, Helen, also the scene where Ingrid's working her ass off to impress the boss and Dan is playing basketball, yeah. <laughs> like not on a court, but, you know, with a little hoop in the office and the client comes in and Ingrid has done all this work and she presents it. And as the client's leaving, Dan's like brings up sports. Yeah. <laughs> and and suddenly they have plans to go. I mean, I'm not I'm not a lawyer <laughs> or nor have I worked in that kind of environment like that. But it just resonated with me. Just so thank you. <laughs> how much harder women have to work. And even that that woman I talked about who didn't like confrontation, I understand that women, there are compromises. If you want to be a president or a CEO, that you do make compromises along the way. Yes. Doesn't make it, me any less disappointed in you. So <laughs> when you know someone's making other women struggle or things more difficult. And there's also a scene in the show where Ingrid's mentor, mm-hmm, right, and she's not being very attentive to her mentee, right. and the mentee goes up to Ingrid's mentor, and she treats her like crap, and yeah. Ingrid kind of, it clicks for her, like, I don't like the way she treats me, I'm going to change that. And honestly, that has been, and I'm not making this show about me, but I wanted you here because this is so, why I started this podcast. Yeah. All these things. I know what you mean. That particular character, Ingrid's assigned mentor, uh, the character's name is Ellen Chu Sanderson. And I also have been getting a lot of comments from um, people I do and don't know who are like, oh my gosh, that totally happened to me. I had a quote, assigned mentor, but I find that I have to go seek out my own mentors in order for that to be helpful. So that is still happening. And by the way, none of this is, it's not unique to law firms at all. No. Well, all. And it's, it's funny because when Me Too started becoming uh-huh. such a big thing, yeah. my husband at one point made a comment about a certain industry and pinned it on that industry. And I was like, are you yeah. fucking kidding me? Yeah, yeah, no, it's everywhere. It is everywhere. <laughs> Nurses tell will tell you the horrible stuff they deal with from doctors. It mm-hmm. is everywhere. I mean, 
I work in PR and it's mainly women and gay guys. And I've been sexually harassed more times than I want, you know, so it is everywhere. Yeah. I don't want to ignore the fact that so because a big part of this is also about racism in the workplace. Yes. And uh-huh. as as a, a, an Asian woman, I'm sure that was a big thing for you as well. Right. But in my case, I, I to be honest, in my case, I always experienced all of these things just kind of like together, like as a combo package. You know what I mean? Sometimes people ask me, well, do you feel like when something like that happens to a person, is it because they're a woman or is it because they're Asian or another or some other kind of like, quote, you know, some other kind of outsider, right? Mm-hmm. They'll ask, like, do you feel like that is because was because of racism or or because of, of sexism or some other ism, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a combo package. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I can't separate that out. You can't really itemize. It's hard to separate out. I think that everyone just kind of takes the person in. And when meeting, you know, when working with them for the first time or meeting them for the first time, just um, make whatever assumptions based on whatever attributes you, that person has, you know? So definitely, I think every, almost every woman in the workplace has probably had the experience of maybe some client walk, some client or patient or whomever walking in and assuming that, oh, maybe you're not the, you know, maybe he that paralegal leaning against the window is the lawyer. That's not unique to any any place. Or also being asked to, hey, can you order up the coffee to the room? I mean, I'm not the only one that that happened to, obviously. Right. But it's hard to kind of separate out. <laughs> and it's funny because yeah. it's only been in the last, I don't know how many years, that I really thought about as a woman all the the barriers that you are up against where a man and not to pick on the white man but they are at the top of the the hierarchy compared to what they are up against they walk into the room and all the assumptions that are made or at least until white fragility became a thing and and now they're victims but anyway they walked into a room with positive assumptions already in people's head and Racism brings a ton of stereotypes. So that's a barrier for all kinds of different people. And then as a woman, if you're too hot, then you must not be that smart or you're immediately sexualized. So I can't hire her. I might want to fuck her, you know, or or not hot enough. Like, yeah, as shown in the one of the later episodes of the show in the, the later. So yeah, I just feel like all of those mo- moments with, I think the cast was amazing they, uh, of bringing a lot of nuance, though, to these scenes. Mm-hmm. And I was just really, really impressed with the nuanced details and everything that they got right. <laughs> you know, so you're happy with yeah. what, what Netflix did. Very. Yeah, I think the show is terrific. And I hope that we I really I think all of us I've now had the opportunity to meet a lot of the cast and crew who are terrific very, very thoughtful. They all seem to get the book, just cool people. And yeah, it's it's just a special group of people. And we all hope that we will get an opportunity to tell more of this story because there is more story here to be told, you know? Yeah. Well, and there's no one that's super well known in the cast, but there are some very recognizable faces. 
I, yeah. I like I find I'm on IMDb. Like I know I've seen this <laughs> before. Like, so, but they're all very good. And I, yeah. you know, again, I can't say enough about the Rachel character, the Tyler character. I freaking hate Dan. So he's doing a good job because <laughs> I hate him so much. And Marty, I don't like that guy either. So I mean, and Ingrid made me angry last night. So I don't know. You know, I mean, these actors are all terrific. The directors, the writers. I, I mean. When I learned that the first two episodes were going to be directed by, <laughs> you know, Julia Ann Robinson from Bridgerton, which is, a, I love that show, you love know, show. I was like, what? Uh, yes, Julia Ann Robinson, she's going to direct the first two episodes, which, you know, set the tone for the show. And then at the premiere, I was like the fangirl because I was, she looks familiar. Oh my God, that's the director of Red. <laughs> That's Juliana sitting Where right did they do the here. premiere? Sorry? Where was the premiere? Oh, in LA at the Regal. And it was just such a, a really fun, great celebration. I'm really happy that I was able to do that. So cool. But I mean, what a great story. Where do they shoot the show? Do they shoot in New York? Yeah. <laughs> they actually did. Yeah. yeah. They shot primarily like everything in the middle of uh in the middle of new york city <laughs> wow it's a really- not, yeah not not far from my old midtown office as a matter of fact and i know you had mentioned that you have been on set because you serve as a consultant mm-hmm. I, I was yes i was lucky enough to visit set in midtown and that was really fun and surreal obviously because to step off the elevator <laughs> you know on a, this high floor of this beautiful skyscraper building in West Midtown and see a welcome, you know, reception desk that says Parsons Valentine and Hunt LLP. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is triggering. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it started in your head and now it's on Netflix. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And, you know, you might have a career in consulting on TV and films as a lawyer. That That's a real job, right? Uh, it is. Yeah. It is a real job. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a good gig. Well, that'd be fun if you could get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes. So if, when, when will they let you know if there's a, a season two? Oh, we don't know. When will they let you know? We really don't. I, I had that question. It's not official. I truly don't. <laughs> so, okay. Well, yeah. fingers crossed because. Yes, fingers crossed. Thank you. Fingers and toes crossed. We, yeah. We'd love to continue to tell this story because I had a lot of fun writing the book and it's been a roller coaster ride, but it's been a really, really fun ride seeing this all come together in this way for this project that began, you know, 23 years ago when I was a young associate. And so I know you you wear a lot of hats. Are you still working in house as a lawyer at time? No, not right now. So right now I'm on a hiatus from lawyering. Well, obviously I am still a full, you know, a, a full time mommy, and. My son just started school again, five school days ago, and working on a next project, hopefully. Another book? Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. I'm on a hiatus too, but it's not self-imposed. <laughs> just <laughs> not freelancing at the moment. All right. Well, I, as I promised you, I do have a game for us to play. Okay. Uh, and sticking to the theme of the show, mm-hmm. it's called Courting Trouble. Famous movie and TV female lawyers. All right. 
So I'm going to read you a description and I need you to tell me the actress or the sh- the movie or TV show. All right. Can give me any description of the person. Okay. Okay. Without all the groundwork lawyer Joanna Galloway had done beforehand, you can't handle the truth would never have been possible. Okay. Well, I love that you can't handle the truth, but Joanna Galloway. Well, you can't handle the truth is a big clue. Yeah. From a few good men. Yep. And who was the actress that played her? Oh, my goodness. I haven't seen that in so long that I'm not sure. You got the movie. Oh, was it? Was it? Was it Demi Moore? Yes, it was. See, oh, there you yeah. go. You're yeah. one for one. All right. Next, Kim Wexler is a vivid, drawn-out person who finds herself at war between her impulse towards destruction and her strong <laughs> moral compass. Hmm. This is currently on AMC. It's a spinoff. Do oh. you know? Is it Better Calls? Yes, it is. Better call someone. I I don't expect you to know the actress's name because I don't even know her name either. Okay. Diane Lockhart is Mm -hmm. devoted to the law as she is her own refined taste. And we follow her as she continues to amass great power and then has to basically start over. Okay. This one does not sound familiar. Diane Lockhart does not. It's Christine Baranski in Uh, A a Good Wife or Good Fight. Oh, Mm-hmm. I don't watch that show, so I wouldn't have that either. All right. Played by one of the greatest actresses to grace the screen, Annalise Keating didn't have much care for how the law was actually practiced, but that didn't make the show any less compelling, especially when it was firing on all cylinders. Hmm. That was a few years ago was on. Oh, then I, ironically, I don't have a lot of time to do <laughs> to watch a lot of TV. All right. Well, this is Viola Davis and How to Get Away with Murder, which she, uh, I watched some of the seasons of it and she was great. Okay. And this, I think, is the last one. Much more of a workplace comedy that happened to be set at a law firm. What made the show work, though, was how many of the cases Allie and her colleagues took on and were often used to channel debates happening in the broader culture, often with pretty interesting results. Oh, did you, Allie? Yeah. Allie? David E. e. Kelly. Yeah, Allie McBeal. And, yeah. and, and anything David E. Kelly makes, frankly. I just, lo- you know, I loved Allie McBeal. Yeah. I did too. I, and actually, I would be interested to to rewatch it now. It was so progressive. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the stories and what it dealt with. Yes. So I, I actually worked at Fox when that show was oh. on. Oh, okay. Yeah. In, in TV PR. Yeah, that'll be in my book, too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you have excellent, excellent, excellent stories mm-hmm. from those days. I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah. From those, yes, I, I remember thinking that that Allie McNeil, wow, this show really is groundbreaking on so many, on so many levels for so many reasons. And that my friends and I would actually, when it would come on, it would be, it would be destination viewing. It would be destination TV watching, you know? The funny thing about Fox is Uh its network programming was innovative and progressive in its thinking. The Simpsons, Allie McBeal, uh, I don't know. I mean, it dealt with stuff that other shows wouldn't touch. 
Yeah. So it's like they have two sides of the brain working over there. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I remember when all of those new shows came on, I was like, wow, this is truly, truly groundbreaking and just innovative. And I've never seen any other show like this. Yeah, I do, I, I do love the Ally McNeil characters and writing. And they were so, so successful at trying to, I mean, the show was so, so entertaining, just funny, entertaining, laugh out loud, fun. And they incorporated music in such a great and way. Diversity. And diversity. And, and diversity. Yeah. yeah. And diversity. Yeah. You know, Lucy Liu was on there, but also it was about lawyers and it was about these cases. Yeah, but that's David E. Kelly's brilliance. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, no. he. I don't think he's done anything lately. You haven't heard anything. Oh, I, I'm not sure. So, yeah. Well, he's um, married to Michelle Pfeiffer. You know, the guy's got stuff. <laughs> All right. Well, again, Helen, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, finally sit down and talk to me. I know you were doing a media tour and you had all kinds of exciting things happening with the the launch. It was late August, right? They launched uh, Partner Yes. So August, Friday, August 26th was when it launched on Netflix. So all 10 episodes are obviously, you know, now available to stream. And fingers crossed it will have an opportunity to continue with this story. Well, thank you so much. I wish you the the best of luck. I, I'd love to see a season two. Want to know when your next book's coming out. Do you have any social media that you can share? Yeah. So Twitter, the handle is at Helen Wan one, uh, H-E-L-E-N-W-A-N-1, and also Instagram and uh, Facebook. So it's the same across all of them. Helen Wan one across all of them. Helen Wan One on Instagram and just Helen Wan on Facebook. If you search me, it'll come up. And my website is HelenWan.com. So thank you, Brianna, for having me. No, no. Thank you for sitting down with me. This has been the Jobs Glow Podcast. We're at JobsGlowPodcast.com on social media at Jobs Glow Podcast. This is Brianna. And thank you again for joining us.